driving down the road feeling hungry and cold so signs saying food and drink for everyone so naturally i thought i'd take me a look inside i saw so much food there was water coming from my eyes yeah there was ham and there was turkey there was caviar and long tall glasses with wine up to yard and somebody grabbed me threw me out of my chair said before you can eat you gotta dance like Fred Astaire you know I can't dance 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 I can't dance oh I can't Entertainment, just poetry and game But if it's all the same to you Then I will try my hand If you were hungry as me Then I'm sure you would understand hmm, Now wait a minute Of course I can dance Of course I can dance I'm sure I can dance I'm sure I can dance I can dance I really hit the floor Oh, it feels good Oh, look at me dancing I did a two-step, quick-step and a bossing over a little Victor Sylvester and a Rudy Valentino You should see me moving Right across the floor Hand me down my tuxedo Next week I'm coming back for more I can dance Oh yes, I can dance Look at me moving The floor's moving I feel good I can dance I can dance What a weird, weird offertory. I have no idea why Vince did that song for the offertory. But anyway, <laughs> traveling down the road, feeling hungry and cold, I saw a sign saying, food and drink for everyone. So naturally, I thought I would take me a look inside. And somebody grabbed me, threw me out of my chair, said, before you can eat, you got to dance like Fred Astaire. You know, you know I can't dance. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us this morning to preach the gospel, the gospel, the eternal gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. About 17 years ago on a, a Tuesday morning, I woke up thinking, how can I make this sermon relevant th this week? I was preaching through the Revelation for the, the first time. You know, this is the, the second time for me. Uh, that Tuesday morning, we were on 
Well, we're, exactly, we're at the exact same spot we are today. The end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. We saw that the beast from the sea was political power and that the beast from the land was, is uh, religious power. Politics and religion, human religion, are both covenants of self-interest. We've been that. Ways that people band together in order to save themselves. They're both antichrists, which means imitation Christ. They're both beasts, for they see the good, consume the good, trying to make themselves good, but only make themselves more beastly. They both have the will of the dragon. The dragon wants to consume the life, the baby. We saw that politics and religion combined are particularly evil. It was the Roman governor, uh, Pontius Pilate, uh, along with the Jewish religious leaders that took the life of Christ on a tree in a garden on the side of Mount Zion. Seventeen years ago, there was a new beast on the horizon for, for most Americans, and that was the nation of Islam. We'd been talking about that. Islam combines religion and politics in a particularly terrifying sort of way. And yet the violence of Islam, if you study history, you'll learn that the violence of Islam is largely a response to the violence of Christendom both at the time of Islam's inception, right after the church had come into an alliance with the empire of Rome, and during the Middle Ages when the Pope in Rome ordered military crusades uh, against uh, uh, the land of Palestine. So instead of teaching, teaching us, this is to, to, to pick up a cross and be crucified, the beasts in Rome taught us to pick up a cross and to crucify. That's a bit backwards. Islamic violence today is largely a response to the creation of the nation state named Israel, an endeavor largely funded by the United States of America and Great Britain for a multitude of reasons, some of which are pretty questionable in terms of biblical exegesis. But it's important you understand I'm not saying that the teachings of Christ are like the teachings of Muhammad. The, the tragedy is that most people seem to think they are. I mean, a lot of times I think if people just substituted Jesus on their t-shirts for some, they, they, well, you get the idea, they like Islam better. Islam does have much in common with Christianity, except it categorically rejects the idea that God would become a man and freely choose to suffer for all. Modern Judaism also has much in common with Christianity, except it categorically rejects the idea that God would become a man and freely choose to suffer for all. The modern nation state of Israel, the nation of Islam, as well as the United States of America are all covenants of self-interest. The kingdom of God is a covenant of self-sacrifice. People always look for the United States of America in the Revelation. Some people actually think it's like the kingdom of God. Some people are worried that it will become the beast. 17 years ago, I began to see that I think, well, we really ought to worry most about that harlot, 
the harlot. We first encounter her in, in our text uh, for today, what, what I was preaching on that week, Revelation 14, verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion, thumos means anger, of her sexual immorality, her, her porneia, the anger of her porneia. So she doesn't love love, she consumes love in anger. Porneia comes from the verb pernami, which means to sell. Uh, porneia, porneia then is the attempt to buy and sell love as if it were a consumer item. The U.S. leads the world in the production of pornography. Not exactly the same, but similar. And the U.S. is the world's largest economy. In chapter 17, we'll read how the harlot sits on many waters, and we find out that that means nations, sits on many waters, and the entire world is addicted to the wine of her porneia. The kings of the earth commit porneia with her. In other words, they're in bed with her, and yet they despise her and long to burn her with fire. That's, that's what often happens with, with harlots. The, the harlot is like a global economy. We'll see that in chapter 17 and 18. A global economy and the beasts are the institutions of this, this world in, in bed with that economy. The harlot rides the beast. A, a global economy or world trade is not bad in and of itself. In fact, the very definition of heaven is a type of world trade. It's a global economy of mutual self-sacrifice in which everyone loves and is loved by all. That's heaven. But this world trade, the world trade of the harlot, is not freedom in life. This world trade is an economy of self-interest in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer through trade. The harlot promises freedom in life, but she produces bondage and death. And I think the thing that's most horrifying about the harlot is that the people of God are seduced by her, have entered into her, and they don't even know it. Now this is a terrifying, listen to this closely. Chapter 18, verse 4, a voice from heaven cries out, come out of her, my people. The harlot is world trade. She's also a city. In the Revelation, she looks like Babylon, Rome, and also Jerusalem. Today, I would think she would be the city that contains those markets that most control the global economy. She's a city, she's world trade, and she's a tower. Genesis 4, Cain builds a city in disobedience to God's explicit command. Genesis 11, the whole world comes together to build a tower. It's the spirit of the harlot, for they're attempting to conquer heaven. It's called the Tower of Babel, as in Babylon. The whore of Babylon is a city, world trade, and a tower that falls. Revelation 14, 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001. 
I was preparing my message on Revelation 14 and wondering if the revelation was at all relevant to, to, to our lives in this day and time. When, when the phone rang, it was my sister, and she said, Peter, turn on your TV. Any channel, it doesn't matter, just turn it on. And so I turned it on, and I saw this picture. Then I watched as a plane flew into the second tower. Both burned, and then I watched them fall. I think it was maybe politics and religion that flew the plane. Maybe a harlot that built the tower. It crumbled behind an image of the Roman goddess Libertas who holds a declaration of independence from, from a king. So what am I saying? That the Statue of Liberty is evil? I don't know. Is that freedom? Do you worship it? Am I saying that the people in the tower were evil? I think I'm saying that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And Jesus suffered and died for each and for all. So I imagine that the people in the tower were no more evil than you or me. Am I saying that I hate America? No, I think I'm loving America right now. Am I saying that I would rather live in another country? No, I think the United States of America is my favorite country in this entire world. I'm just beginning to realize that maybe I don't want to live in any country in this entire world. I want to live in the kingdom of God. Okay, it's the kind of thing a preacher would say. What should we do? What should we do? How does his kingdom come and his will get done on earth as it is in heaven? 2001, not knowing what to do, we just gathered Lookout Mountain and, and sang songs. After the service, my friend Tom came to me rather disturbed, and he said, Peter, as you were speaking, I kept seeing this white horse. It was running up and down the aisles. Later, he told me, he said, Peter, Jesus was on the horse, and he was like agitated, like he, he wanted to go to war, and behind him were mounted troops. Tom didn't say how many. I'm guessing 144,000. During that service and in the weeks that followed, I preached. I, I preached. I, I preached this is an opportunity. <laughs> and we could go to war like Jesus, or we could declare war like a beast. Within days, the president declared a war on, on terror. How do you go to war with terror? This is just a chart that I, I pulled off the internet like eight years ago, okay? So many of the numbers are highly debatable, and now they're out of date. The yellow represents the 2,974 American civilians who, who died as victims on 9-11. The blue represents 1,035,587 Iraqi and Afghan civilian casualties in the following nine years 
after 9-11. That's the debatable number. And you can look all this stuff up on the internet and you'll see people do all kinds of way, different ways of counting. But even if the actual number is just a quarter of that number, it means that we killed like 100 times more civilians than were killed on, on 9-11. And I said that these numbers are, are old. They, they don't include the rise of ISIS, deaths in countries like Syria, Somalia, the United States soldiers that, that came home and, and took their own lives after active, active duty overseas. All of this violence happened under Republican and Democrat, Democratic leadership. None of this violence resurrected the 2,974 people that died on 9-11. And I don't feel any safer than I did on 9-12-2001. Listen closely. I'm not saying this to make us feel guilty and try harder. I'm saying this to expose our egos to the glory of God such that the truth might burn our pride to dust and ashes, leaving nothing but a word. <sighs> Yeshua, God help us. Perhaps you're thinking, okay, fine, fine, Peter, but what could the government have done differently? Well, I have a few suggestions, but I really don't know. I really do not know. As I said last time, as we preached last time, the beast is extremely hard to kill. And beware when fighting the dragon, lest you become the dragon. I don't see a political solution. I don't know what the government could have done differently. Okay, fine, Peter, what could we have done differently? Well, perhaps we could have not been so terrified of death. We can only battle terrorism by no longer being terrified. We could drink the blood of the Lamb, speak the word of our testimony, and love not our lives even unto death. Last time, you remember, we ended by remembering how Jesus battled the beast. It's also the way in which he redeems the harlot and turns her into the bride. It, it was precisely when the old harlot Jerusalem chanted, crucify, 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 at the instigation of the beast from the land, colluding with the beast from the sea, that Christ conquered. It, it was precisely when, we took, precisely when we took his life that he gave his life. It was precisely when the Roman soldier thrust the spear in Jesus' side that the blood began to flow. And that Roman beast dropped to his knees in front of the, uh, of the cross and began to worship. Worship what? The lamb enthroned on the tree on Mount Zion. It was precisely when the harlot wounded his side that the bride was created from that very same spot on that very same side. It was precisely then that she began to know Yahweh is my helper. It was then that we began to know the good. God alone is good and he gives us, he gives us his life. He is beauty. 
I love the scene at the end of King Kong. Remember uh, King Kong? Kong climbs the towers and, and then he, he falls. In the 76 version, the tower that he climbs is the World Trade Center. He falls because he tries to capture beauty in the form of the actress Anne Dar Darrow. He, he tries to capture beauty and lo and behold, beauty captures his heart. A reporter comments, it was the planes that got him and Carl Denham, played by Jack Black in the 05 version, says, it wasn't planes that got him. Beauty killed the beast. I, I, lo I love that line. On the cross, beauty conquered the dragon, killed the beast, and turned the harlot into a bride. That's how Jesus goes to war. So how do we go to war? How does his kingdom come? How does his will get done on earth as it is in heaven? Revelation 13, verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. And his number is 666, like the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week, at the sixth hour when we crucified the Lamb of God on a tree in, in a garden on the side of Mount Zion. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. He's standing. And with them 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Kitara, it's where we get our word guitar. This is like a guitar concert. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. You know how women are. For they are virgins. They're virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So in chapter 13, John sees the beasts. And then at the chapter start of 14, he sees something entirely different. He sees the Lamb and 144,000 on Mount Zion. Mount Zion, this is where the woman was made from Adam's side, according to many Orthodox Jews. This is the site of Jerusalem. Read the Old Testament. She's the harlot that turns into a bride. This is the site of the temple of stone that becomes a temple of flesh. This is where the Lamb is slaughtered. But now the Lamb is standing and 144,000 sing a new song. It appears to be the same new song that's sung in chapter five. You remember that? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them kings and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. In chapter 5, you remember they, I brought the scroll, remember, they're singing outside the scroll. They're singing outside of space-time. It's like eternity. But now, they're in space and time on Mount Zion, singing. In the beginning, God spoke creation into existence. Or maybe he sang it into existence. 
That's how Tolkien describes it in the Silmarillion. That's how C.S. Lewis describes it in the Chronicles of Narnia. According to physicists, all creation is like the manifestations of vibrations on superstrings and quantum fields. That's how the Hindus picture it. God sings or dances creation. He's the dancer, and creation is his dance. That's how John describes it in his gospel. God is the singer. Jesus is the song. And we become or are his dancing body. You are God's creation, sung into reality on the sixth day and finished perfect on the seventh. The 144,000 have the name of the Creator on their foreheads and the name of Jesus, the Creator, that's Yahweh and Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. They're perfect. They weren't perfect, but now they're perfect. So if they have a, a number on their head, I would think it would be 777. The song they sing is praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It goes like this. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. The fall on the sixth day makes them long for the perfection on the seventh day. No one, no one can learn the song except the 144,000 redeemed from the earth. You see, God has literally turned their sin into grace. He's literally turned their sorrow into laughter. He's literally turned their mourning into dancing. They are the first fruits of mankind. Romans 11, Paul writes, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. They're, they're holy, and all mankind is the whole lump. As we preached on extensively in chapter 7, they're a picture of Israel. But not the Jewish nation state named Israel, but the Israel of God. All 12 tribes, not just Judah. All 12 tribes times 12 times 1,000. The largest denomination in Koine or biblical, biblical, biblical Greek. They are what theologians refer to as the church militant. They are soldiers. They're soldiers, and, and so what are they fighting? Well, not the rest of mankind. They're fighting to liberate the rest of mankind from the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. And they have not defiled themselves with women. You know, in ancient times, men of honor, like Uriah the Hittite, would keep themselves from sexual relations when called to war. Well, whether or not that's what this means, the 144,000 have not defiled themselves with women. Actually, they are women. They're virgins, Parthenos. It's a female noun used for female persons like the Virgin Mary. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, listen to this, I betrothed you to one husband, helper, husband, to present you as an undefiled Parthenos, virgin to Christ. If you know anything about the Corinthians, you know that they were the least unvirgin-like people in all the Roman Empire. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I washed you in the blood of Christ, and I turned you, I turned you, a gaggle of whores, into a spotless virgin. 
the spotless bride, you remember who you are. The 144,000 are singing soldier brides or, or, or bride that follow the lamb wherever he goes. Whether it's a party or it's a cross, they follow him. That's where they all go in perfect harmony with the lamb, the head, the word, the rhythm of the song, the song of God. They, they move as a body. When the beast moves, it looks like this. The kingdom of God is not another beast. The kingdom of God is a body. It's not a covenant of self-interest that binds uniform individuals together for the sake of self-preservation. It's a covenant of self-sacrifice that binds unique members together for fun, for joy, for no reason. No reason because it is the reason. It's love. And when everyone, when everyone is, is motivated and moved by love, it's eternal life. It's life of the coming age. It doesn't look then like this. No, back, back one, back one. There should be another one, not that one. You're missing one slide. It doesn't look like the blob. Is it, is it not on there? There we go. It doesn't look like this. Remember, we talked about this. It looks like this. looks like this. It doesn't move like this. It moves more like this. I was traveling down the road feeling hungry and cold. I saw a sign saying food and drink for everyone. So naturally I thought I would take me a look inside. Somebody grabbed me, threw me out of my chair, said before you can eat, you got to dance like Fred Astaire. You know I can't dance. You know I can't dance. I can march, but I can't dance. How does Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers do that? I mean, that's got to be work, but it looks like rest. How, how do they get billions of cells to move in perfect harmony such that they manifest such incredible beauty and seem to have so much fun? How can they manifest such order and yet experience such freedom all at the same time. How do they do that? They must be listening to music. So how do all 144,000 on Mount Zion move in perfect harmony with the Lamb, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal Ionios of God's age, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has, has come. 
and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Gospel, eternal go gospel means good news or beautiful news. This gospel is eternal and Paul writes, there's only one gospel. This eternal gospel must be the new song. And that's why the song is always new. Things don't get old in eternity. That's the way it works. That's why the dance is rest. It's the seventh day and everything is good. On the seventh day, you don't move to accomplish anything. You move because all things have been accomplished. It is finished. And that's why the dance is free. You constantly, every moment, will what you want and want what you will. Free will reigns in, in your heart. This eternal gospel is the good news that God's judgment has come. And where is God's judgment now? You know, we thought that God's judgment was like a dead thing, like knowledge of good and evil that we could, you know, get from a book, take from a book. We thought it was the law. But what if the judgment of God isn't the knowledge of the good, but it is the good? And what if the good is not dead, but alive? And what if the word of God, will of God, and judgment of God is a person? And what if that person could sit on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul and sit on the throne in the sanctuary of your neighbor's soul? And maybe even sit on the throne in the sanctuary in everyone's soul? Well, then everyone would be coordinated and animated from the inside rather than constrained and manipulated from the outside. And what if that person didn't want to possess your soul, like a demon? What if that person didn't want to possess your soul, but wanted to commune with you in the sanctuary of your soul? In other words, what if that person wanted you to sit on the throne with him? Well then, he wouldn't just possess your soul. He'd like romance your soul. John 12, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and he was speaking of being lifted on his tree, his cross, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will romance all people to myself. They're dancing on Mount Zion because on the cross, Jesus delivered up his spirit. The same spirit that fills his disciples 40 days later at the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, where fire falls and they all begin praising God in foreign tongues, yet with one message that everyone understands. You see, it's the undoing of the Tower of Babel. And they freely share everything in common with glad and generous hearts, like a great dance, like the kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is how his kingdom comes. His will is done on earth as it is in, in heaven. You see, faith in you is Christ in you, his spirit in, in you. Through faith, we hear the word of God that surrounds us constantly like a song. You know, there's incredible logic in every song, every bit of music that you hear. It's this insanely advanced math of countless harmonic oscillations in the atmosphere all around you. 
You cannot comprehend all the logic in a song. But the logic in a song can comprehend you and make you dance. The gospel is eternal. And the gospel is the new song. You don't create the song. It's the song that creates you. The song is all around you. Everything good, everything beautiful, everything true, everything reasonable, everything truly logical is a manifestation of the song. So why aren't we nothing but good, nothing but beautiful, nothing but true, nothing but reasonable, nothing but logical? That is full of logos. In other words, why aren't we dancing all the time? Maybe we can't hear the song. The song is sung to the glory of God. By the way, that's how you can distinguish the voice of the lamb from the voice of the beast that looks like the lamb. The song is sung to the glory of God. So why can't we hear the song? The song is sung to the glory of God, but you know, almost everything I do when I reflect upon it is to the glory of me. I think I have to glorify myself to make myself in the image of God, but the glory of God is to make me in his own image. So maybe I have to lose the self that I've made. I mean, maybe I have to lose my ego to hear the song. Maybe I have to lose my ego to hear the song and start dancing. Maybe it's hard to dance if you're like all self-conscious. Maybe I'm imprisoned in one of these. Remember we talked about this, the self that I make. And maybe I've become beastly, just like we spoke about last time. You know, a beast inside of a beast inside of another beast battling all the beasts. I mean, my city is a fortress, my soul is a fortress, and inside the fortress is like a, a lonely harlot. <laughs> like Rahab, sitting behind the walls in the city of Jericho. Verse eight, another angel, a second angel fallen, uh, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion, Thumas, the passion of her pornea. The walls of Jericho, if you remember this, the walls of Jericho fell on the seventh day, seven time around as seven priests blew seven trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant and the people began to shout and sing. It was when Jonah sang a prayer. Jonah chapter two is all a, a song. He sang a prayer. It was when Jonah sang a prayer in the belly of the beast that the, the beast barfed him up on land. The beast could not stomach the song. It was when Jesus began to sing on the cross that the gates of hell were broken. First line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end of the sixth day on the tree in the garden, Jesus began to sing. He sang Psalm 22 all the way to the end. It ends like this. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It is finished. That's the seventh day. 
He sang, and the earth shook, tombs were opened, and saints, saints came out, saints came out of the tombs and went into the city. You can read about it in Matthew. It was when Paul and Silas sang that the earth shook and the prison doors opened. They sang to the glory of God and joined the eternal song that sung constantly around the throne. I think it's the song that somehow makes all things and makes all things new. And if you think, okay, come on, Peter. I mean, we started out talking about all these political problems and everything. I mean, that's just silly. Well, why are we here? You know, we are not here because the Roman Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity in 313 AD. We're not here because of any human institution or anything that any uh, government or a, a, a human religious body did. We're here because some folks suffering great tribulation heard the gospel, started to sing, and their lives became a dance, and they changed the world. I'm not farting around now when I say this. I know this. The ancient dragon is not in the least bit worried about threats from the strongest military in the history of the world. But he is utterly terrified when you listen to the gospel, begin to sing along, and maybe even dance. Chapter 17, we'll read that the dragon, the beast, and the harlot will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. The lamb and those with him. The 144,000 singing dancers. The dance destroys the beasts, both the big ones and the little ones. Remember Solomon wrote that God is testing us that we might see that we are but beasts. Verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast. And now remember, last chapter, it's pretty clear that all who are on the surface of the earth worship the, the beast. And it talks about the number that, that don't have the number, and yet all that are on the surface of the earth worship the beast. And then the second beast is going to make everybody on the surface of the earth get the, the number. The 144,000 are redeemed from the earth. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his, his hand, and by the way, by the way, if just by chance someone comes along and says, hey, would you like the number 666 stamped on your head? or Just say no to the beast, okay? I wish it was that simple, but I think it's probably more subtle. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine. In Revelation, wine is often blood and blood is wine. The wine of God's Thumas, his passion, the wine of God's passion, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented. Basanizo. The last time we read this verse was chapter 12, and it was translated anguish. The woman was in anguish, remember? To deliver. To deliver what? The life. The life of Christ. The arrogant, our, our arrogant old self we talked about is also in anguish to deliver the new self. And what's that? The life of Christ. Every worshiper of the beast will be made to drink the wine that is also anguish. They will be anguished with fire and theon. It's a word that we'll talk about quite a bit, but it can be translated brimstone or divinity. Theon from theos, which means God. They will be anguished with fire and godness or, or divinity in the presence of the holy angels. Scripture says he makes his angels flames of fire. Fire and theon in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Remember the lamb appeared at the start of the revelation as a man on fire. 
Paul writes that the Antichrist is destroyed by the manifestation of his parousia, Christ's parousia, his, his presence. Verse 11, and the smoke of their anguish goes up forever and ever, literally for eons and eons or ages and ages. Scripture says that we have come to the end of the ages in Christ Jesus. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, the eternal, Ionios, seventh day. So the smoke, uh, the smoke of their anguish rises through all the days of time, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his, its name. Maybe they have no rest because they're stuck. Maybe they're stuck in the sixth day of creation and won't surrender to the symphony of the seventh day that is all around them. God's rest. Maybe they have no rest because they think they have to make good, and they yet have not heard that the good, who is God, has made them. That's gospel. Maybe they don't rest because all, all of their works are, are an arrogant illusion. You know, they just face. You're getting older, right? You're just watching it. All your works, they just fade away. Cities, empires, and nations do not abide, but faith, hope, and love abide. The dance is eternal. Every step in the dance is a deed that cannot be destroyed. In fact, every step is a good work prepared beforehand that you would walk in it or more accurately dance in it. You know I can't dance. You know I can't dance? Verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus is literally in the saints. That's how the Greek reads. It's literally in the saints. But why then, why then would they need to endure? Unless perhaps their beastly old self is in the process of being like burned away so that they would be finally free to hear the song and join the dance on Mount Zion in the seventh day. Listen closely. Paul writes that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh. And then we are constantly being given up to death, writes Paul. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed, that means happy, blessed, happy are the dead who die. What a phrase. Happy are the dead who die in the Lord, as if Jesus came to help the dead die in him. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. For their labors, their deeds follow them. You know that Jesus, John, and Paul, they all spoke as if we, humanity, <laughs> I think this is so important, they spoke as if we, humanity, are already dead. So physical death is not death. It's just like a symbol of, 
of death. Death is being cut off from life. So this is death. And this is more death. And this is the death of death, the second death. And this is life. The death of death happens at the cross. Satan keeps us in lifelong bondage through the fear of death. And we're already dead. <laughs> and the death of death is eternal life. See how messed up that is? And do you see how we conquer? We conquer by the blood of the Lamb. It's the life that flows through our veins, my veins, your veins. As I surrender my life, I receive life. And as you receive life, you surrender life. That's how the blood flows. The blood of the Lamb and the logos of our testimony, it's the message that connects every cell in the body to, to the head. Every cell is connected to the head. It's the rhythm of the song that animates all things, the logos. Blood of the Lamb, logos of the testimony, loving not our psyches, our individual lives, even unto death. I, I hope you see how this gospel liberates us from the tyranny of the beast. And I hope you see how it liberates you from the tyranny of your own ego. You know I can't dance. You know I can't dance. I once saw a movie about a boy that couldn't dance. The harder he tried to dance, the worse and the worse his attempt at dancing got. In the words of C.S. Lewis, as long as you have to count the steps, you're not dancing, but only learning to dance, attempting to dance. You have to lose yourself. At the start of the sermon, maybe you were feeling yourself get a little burned. I was trying to burn all of us. <laughs> but to dance, you have to lose yourself in the music to find yourself dancing. Slaves and children dance best. Why? Because they don't have a whole lot of self to lose. It may feel like wrath when God reduces you to a slave or a child, when he humbles you, humiliates you, cuts you, and burns your arrogant flesh with holy fire. It may feel like wrath, but it's always mercy. He's helping you lose yourself so you could finally hear the music and join the dance, the great dance. Well, anyway, this one night, this boy just sank into despair he just gave up on dancing and listened to the radio. And that concludes this Sunday night gospel hour, live from the Four Square Gospel Church and the Divine Salvation in St. Louis, Missouri. The Reverend Willard Wilman, pastor. And now, music throughout the night. Music in a mellow
Yeah. <laughs> well, if this is out there, think how much more is out there. This is the kind of music that tells me to go out there and be somebody. But Naven. Let him go. That's Niven, and I've reflected on that scene seriously for years. I don't know if any scene in any movies ever affected my theology. In fact, I wrote a book on it, Dance Lessons for Zombies. In the end, Naven didn't dance to make himself good. The music is good. So Naven lost himself and found himself dancing. The dance destroys the work of the devil, but that's not the reason we dance. The dance is the reason for all things. The great dance is love. And God is love. Three persons, one dance, and he's inviting you to join the dance. And this is the logic of the dance. He took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take, eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant, my dear, in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. I was traveling down the road feeling hungry and cold. I saw a sign saying, food and drinks for everyone. But this is the law. Before you can eat, you got to dance like Fred Astaire. And this is the gospel. The Lord of the dance says, here, eat my body, drink my blood. Why do we come here each week? This is, I think, what Carl preached on last week. Don't we come here each week to just say, God, you know I can't dance. Then we listen to the gospel. We even ingest the gospel, and then we sing. I can dance. I can dance. And we know uh, that we dance by grace, through faith, and this not of ourselves. So God, God alone, gets the glory. And we are free. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both the life of God and the logos of God. Amen. You know, I used to think that that, we, I love that song. I used to think that it was only for the end of time, and it is. And Jesus said, I came that you might have eternal life, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So I don't know how this sermon applies to you. I think the way it applies to me, well, in every way, but one way is sometimes I seem to have no rest day or night. Uh, just, in fact, this morning I woke up at 3.30 because I locked my computer in this room up at the synagogue and I thought, what if the slides don't work and all that? And I, but I do that a lot. And I think at those times the, the Lord finds a way to say something like this to me. Hey, Peter, maybe you're worshiping the beast. Maybe you're dwelling on the surface of the earth in the sixth day. You know, I, I, you can look to me 
and you can listen to my song. And so maybe um, that's what you struggle with. Maybe you worship the beast a little bit. Well, the good news is that he redeems the 144,000 from the surface of the earth, and he wipes the name of the evil one off of our heads, and he gives us his own new name. We belong to him. And uh, when you worship him, when you dance, you're really no longer living on the surface of the earth. You're no longer living in space and time as we experience it. You begin to, to experience eternal life, and that eternal life destroys the beast and sets you free. And you will dance on the streets that are golden um, and never stop. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel even now. Amen.